0: And welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. We are marching on. It's almost August. Yeah, it is. And we had a week off. Do you feel refreshed,
1: I rejuvenated? I actually
0: do. I feel like it was very necessary for both of us to have a week off and to kind of re. What do they call it? Recenter. Calibrate. Yeah, recalibrate. <laughs> recuperate. All of those things that start all with. All the reads. We're doing all the reads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it was great. Um, I think we both kind of left our houses for a few days and just got out in the fresh air. I know I did. I yes. was very happy to just kind of be on my own, secluded from everybody in the world. And it was awesome. So, yes, I feel very refreshed and very happy to be back recording a new episode this week.
1: I am too. I'm very excited
0: about this week. Me too. All right, so we will get right into it. Something all true crime lovers really love is a good crazy story. I think that's why a lot of people are really interested in true crime in the first place. And Melissa and I are no different. But on our show, we tend to gravitate more towards lesser known cases. And sometimes there are more infamous cases that we don't really talk about, but we still find them really interesting. And we would like to feature them on the podcast. So this week, we are going to be talking about a pretty popular case. And it is about the 2003 pizza bomber murder that happened in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this is the part where I would normally say, we're going to go into Google this city. But guess what, guys, We don't have Googled this city this week. And some of you might be sad, but some of you will be happy based on the comments that we get. (laughs) This is an I'm sorry and also you're
1: welcome. Yes.
0: (laughs) So there is no Googled this city. No reason in particular. I guess Erie just isn't Googled this city worthy. Is that what happened? Oh, gosh.
1: (laughs) I think Erie is a wonderful place. It seems amazing. The facts I found were basically it's named after a lake and not a whole lot else. I just could not come up with anything better than vanilla ice jokes from last (laughs) time. So this is where I'm at.
0: All right. So sometimes in crime stories, there is more than one shocking crime occurring simultaneously. So often in the act of carrying out a big crime, the perpetrator will commit several smaller crimes along the way or several big crimes along the way. The story this week is one of those cases. There are multiple crimes happening all throughout, but everything comes to an end with the murder of a man named Brian Wells. Brian Douglas Wells was born on November 15th, 1956 in Warren, Pennsylvania. He was one of five children born to Rose and Harold Wells. Brian was a very intelligent child. His verbal IQ was actually 100 and his performance IQ was 120, which at the time that he was evaluated was higher than 90% of the population. Melissa, I don't really know anything about IQ scores, do you? I
1: am 150.
0: I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I don't even know if it goes that high. But
1: if he was 120, I'll give myself 30 points because nobody can argue that. I don't think.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They gave me an IQ test when I was in like the fourth grade. And I don't remember anything about it really, except that it was like really annoying that I had to take this test, but um, I don't remember what the score was. And I also don't know if your IQ changes from the fourth grade to adulthood. I, I if anything, so. mine has probably gone down, but um, I don't really know. Mine's what truly
1: is. probably about 18, 19, somewhere <laughs> around
0: there. <laughs> so as you can imagine, Brian performed well in school and made straight A's up until he reached middle school, at which time he began to struggle a little bit with academics. In 1973, Brian dropped out of high school at the age of 16 and took a job working as a mechanic. He eventually found his way into the pizza delivery business, which he would continue to work in for decades to come. Brian was an incredibly hardworking and reliable guy. Where some people might not take a pizza delivery job seriously, Brian really put his all into it. When Brian was in his early 30s, his father Harold passed away after a very long battle with multiple sclerosis. This left his mother Rose to care for all the children alone, and this may have also been the cause for some of the turmoil and internal struggle for Brian. As he aged, he continued to be independent and never married or had children. He struggled with alcohol addiction at different times in his life, but everybody that knew him said that he was very well-liked and polite, and he really got along with everyone. Over the years, Brian fell into his own routine. He woke up at the same time every day, read the newspaper, got breakfast at McDonald's, and then went off to his job at Mama Mia's Pizzeria. He was close with his mom and his siblings, but he didn't have a ton of friends. Brian appeared to be just an average guy living a normal life until he made headlines in 2003 for the most shocking and bizarre reason.
1: On August 28, 2003, Brian, who was 46 years old at the time, entered a PNC bank branch at 2.27 p.m. carrying a modified shotgun shaped like a cane. Around his neck was a very sophisticated collar bomb, and in his hand was a four-page letter of instructions that he would pass on to the bank teller. Although the note was long, the basic gist of it was simple. He wanted the teller to work with employees who knew the access code to the bank vault so that they could give him $250,000 in cash. In the note, it was explained that Brian had a live bomb around his neck, and that time was of the essence before the bomb detonated. The teller only had 15 minutes to get him the money. Unfortunately, there was no manager present at the bank at the time, and the bank vault could not be opened that quickly, and there was no way to access the money inside. The teller then filled a bag with all the money that she had available to her, which was $8,702. Brian took the bag and a dum-dum lollipop off the counter and left the bank. At 2.38 p.m., the first 911 call came into dispatch. The caller stated that he'd just witnessed a man walking out of the bank with what appeared to be a bomb around his neck. At this point, Brian had made it back to his car, and he was headed to a different location. About 10 to 15 minutes later, officers spotted Brian in a nearby parking lot and moved in to arrest him for the robbery but no one could have expected what would happen next. Brian told the police that he was just a pizza man and that he'd been out making deliveries when he was suddenly attacked by a group of men who held him at gunpoint while they strapped a bomb to him and forced him to rob the bank. It sure seems like a bizarre and unlikely story to the police, but Brian insisted that the bomb was real and that it was going to go off if they didn't figure out how to remove it from around his neck. This obviously created a pretty chaotic scene for the police. Not only were they concerned for Brian's safety, but they were also worried about the safety of themselves and other bystanders, as there were still so many unknowns about what was happening. Getting called out for alleged bombs was nothing new for the police, but none of the officers that responded that day had ever been in a situation where the bomb was actually real, so of course they were kind of skeptical this time too. Brian was placed in handcuffs and told to sit on the pavement while the officers called in the bomb squad. While he was seated there, police took cover behind their cars and kept their guns pointed at Brian, just in case he tried to make any suspicious moves.
0: At this point, they had no idea who Brian was or what his true involvement was in this situation, but the most important thing was getting the bomb squad there to disarm the explosive so they could find out what was actually going on. To police, there seemed to be two possibilities. The first was that Brian had put a bomb on himself in order to rob the bank, and the second was that someone else had placed the bomb around his neck and forced him into robbing the bank. A nine-page note that Brian had with him would answer some of those questions while leaving dozens more unanswered. It was 3.04 p.m. when police put in the call to the bomb squad. As Brian sat on the ground waiting for them to arrive, he seemed to be pretty calm and collected for someone who had a bomb around his neck and Brian began telling the police the story about how he ended up in this position. He alleged that he'd been making a pizza delivery when three men ambushed him, put the bomb on him, and forced him to carry out this robbery. He said that he only had a limited amount of time before it was going to explode. Officers asked Brian how long he had to rob the bank before the bomb was to go off, and he told them that he was given 20 minutes to rob the bank and about 50 additional minutes to complete a series of tasks to unlock the bomb. The instructions for this were all outlined in this lengthy nine-page note that he was carrying with him.
1: By the time you finish reading this nine-page note, 50 minutes is up. That's a lot of instruction to get through. You know, just the reading process of that is going to take you a lot of time. Especially when you're
0: anxious. I mean, I have such a hard time focusing on reading and retaining information when I'm not anxious, but I can't imagine being in this situation and trying to even figure out, like, what does any of this mean and what am I supposed to do? Yeah. The minutes passed and help from the bomb squad still hadn't arrived. Brian started to become visibly upset and fidgety, and he seemed like he was really starting to panic. As time went on, news trucks and media crews began to arrive, and the situation was unfolding on live television. Beeping could be heard coming from the collar bomb, and Brian kept calling out to the police and saying that he wasn't lying. This bomb was going to go off. And sadly, it would turn out that he really wasn't lying. At 3.18 p.m., the bomb detonated while still attached to Brian's neck. He was killed nearly instantly, all on live TV. Three minutes after the bomb went off, the bomb squad showed up. But, of course, it was too late. Wow. After the shocking explosion that
1: took Brian's life, investigators had to work to figure out who was responsible for this strange incident. As we mentioned before, Brian had a nine-page long note. In the note were highly detailed instructions for Brian to follow if he wanted to have any hope of disarming this bomb and walking free. It appeared that there was some sort of directions for a scavenger hunt in the note. There were four different tasks outlined that Brian was to complete, with each completed task earning him a key and more time to complete the instructions. If he followed along carefully, Brian would allegedly find everything he needed to take the bomb off. These weren't just written instructions, however. There were also very detailed drawings and detailed maps for Brian to use on his quest to free himself and get to safety. Once investigators determined that Brian Wells had no prior criminal background, the only place they knew to start with their investigation was by retracing his steps to find out who was behind this. And we're going to get right back into the details of the investigation and where it led the police after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I love to keep my house nice and cool, especially at night, but in the summer, it's almost impossible to do. And that's why I love my new Sheets and Giggles sheets. Sheets and Giggles 100% eucalyptus sheets are softer, more breathable, and are more sustainable than both cotton and bamboo, which is a fancy way of saying, get ready for a cool night of sleep for you. Some sheets I've had in the past have felt great and are even a nice quality, durable sheet. The problem with the sheets I've had before is they haven't been breathable. You know that feeling when you wake up in the middle of the night and just feel hot and gross like your sheets are suffocating you and you question all your life decisions? That isn't the case with my sheets and giggle sheets because not only are they soft and comfortable, they
0: actually breathe and feel cool and breezy all summer long. And don't worry. When winter gets here, they'll be cuddly and cozy, thanks to being thermally protected to hold up against normal living. So they are the perfect anytime, all the time sheets. Sheets and Giggles uses zero pesticides or insecticides. And unlike most bedding brands, their packaging is 100% plastic free. Plus, there is an eternal return policy. You can try it for 100 days, 100 months, or 100 years. If you don't like it, you can return it. Go to sheetsgiggles.com and use promo code MOMS for 10% off the best night of your life. Again, go to sheetsgiggles.com and use the promo code MOMS for 10% off the best night of your life. We just took a week off, which gave my brain a break from thinking about true crime. But even though we weren't thinking about true crime, my brain still wants a challenge, which is why I love Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the fun and exciting puzzle adventure that you can experience anywhere, anytime. Even if you're without Wi-Fi or have someone in your home using all the Wi-Fi to actually work, Best Fiends still works because it doesn't require an internet connection to play.
1: I've been playing Best Fiends long enough that I'm on level 830 and still play it for a few minutes every day. What I'm liking about Best Fiends is that the further I'm going through the levels, the more challenging they become. And I really love that the more I play, the more they incorporate previous challenge into the new levels, so it feels like I'm building on my skills. Plus, games are really quick, so I can play one while I'm sitting through commercials on 90 Day Fiance, or while I'm waiting for water to boil when I'm making dinner. I love strategizing and choosing my favorite fiends for each level, and anytime I can use Newt the Frog in a level, I know it's going to be a fun one.
0: I always enjoy when I receive a gift in the game from a friend, and I'm always psyched seeing the leader board to see where i stand best fiends has thousands of levels already with new levels events and characters added every month it's hours of fun right at your fingertips and you can even play offline with over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews best fiends is a must play download best fiends free on the apple app store or google play that's friends without the r best fiends
1: now back to the episode
0: Before the break, we were just about to get into how police began their investigation into the confusing death of Brian Wells after a collar bomb attached to his neck detonated. They began by reviewing the nine page letter of instructions that Brian Wells had on him at the time of his death and decided to follow the directions themselves in hopes that it would lead them to more answers. The first page of the letter instructed Brian to leave the PNC bank with the money and drive to McDonald's. This is where Brian was arrested and subsequently died. Upon arriving at McDonald's, Brian was supposed to get out of his car and look for the small sign that read, drive-through, open 24 hours, and there was supposed to be a rock in the flower bed with a note taped to the bottom of it where he would find the next set of instructions. Police found the note, which was two pages long, and it instructed him to go to Peach Street to locate a container with orange tape on it that had the next set of instructions. So the police went there, and sure enough, there was another note that directed them two miles south to a small road sign. The next clue would allegedly be in a jar in some nearby woods. This is so, like, this is so much.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get the point of that at all. I mean, really, knowing the whole story, I still don't understand why you would- send somebody
0: on a wild goose chase like this. No, I guess if you're trying to buy time and and just really send the police on a wild goose chase, I have no idea what the purpose of any of this would be. Yeah. When police located the jar, it was empty, and there was no further instructions. So they believed that it was possible that the culprits had called off this scavenger hunt because by that time, they knew the police were on the trail. But the police believed that even if there was instructions in there... Brian never would have had the time to complete all of these tasks in the first place. They were at a dead end with the instructions, so their next move was to retrace Brian's steps, starting with his place of employment at Mamma Mia's. Investigators spoke to the owner of the pizzeria named Tony DiTomo and learned more about the delivery order that Brian had last set out on.
1: It was 1.30 p.m. when the call came into the restaurant. Tony said he could barely understand the person that was on the other end because it sounded like they were outside and it was really windy. The person on the other end seemed to be asking if Mamma Mia's would deliver a pizza to a TV transmission tower that he and some guys were doing work at. Tony told them that they'd be able to deliver a pizza there, and then he put Brian, the delivery driver, on the phone. Brian took down the address of the tower and set out on his final delivery of the day. Once police confirmed that Brian had taken a delivery to the tower, they drove there themselves to look for more clues. When they arrived, they found Brian's shoe prints and tire tracks, confirming that he had been at that tower. But from there, the trail sort of went cold, until police received a tip about another murder that would eventually lead them to answers about the death of Brian Wells. At 8.50 p.m. on September 20th, 2003, less than a month after the collar bomb incident, A man named Bill Rothstein called police and told them that they would find a body in a freezer in the garage of a home at 8645 Peach Street. The address of the home was significant because it was just a five-minute walk from the TV transmission tower where Brian Wells made his final pizza delivery. Police wouldn't learn just how important this connection was until they began investigating this new allegation. What Bill Rostein failed to mention at first was that the address he was sending the police to check out was his own home address. Sure enough, when police arrived, they did discover the frozen body of a man inside a freezer. It was clear that whoever this victim was had been there for at least a few weeks. Bill Rothstein wasted no time telling the police just who this man was and how he ended up in his freezer. The victim was a man named Jim Roden, and Bill Rothstein alleged that Jim had been murdered by a woman named Marjorie Deal Armstrong, and that she offered to pay $2,000 for Bill to help her get rid of the body. Bill was taken into custody while investigators worked to figure out more information, and the very next day, they arrested Marjorie for her part in the crime. But this wasn't even close to being all there was to this bizarre story, and in order to explain how any of this even happened, we need to explain exactly who Marjorie Deal Armstrong was.
0: Marjorie was born Marjorie Eleanor Deal on February 26, 1949, to parents Agnes and Harold. She was an only child to the World War II veteran and his wife, who was a teacher. Growing up, Marjorie had a strong desire to make her mother proud, but she often felt that the expectations placed on her were impossible to achieve. Marjorie's father, however, seemed to be somewhat jealous of the relationship between his only child and his wife. Marjorie later alleged that her father also struggled with alcoholism and that both of her parents pushed her too hard towards perfection. From as early as age eight, Marjorie took a liking to the concept of money and she became obsessed with making sure that she would have her own wealth one day. Her grandparents were really quite wealthy and her own parents taught her the value of money and how to invest it wisely as they had done with their own money. This preoccupation with money caused Marjorie to imagine a life of wealth and prosperity, and she believed that she was entitled to such a life. Growing up, Marjorie was active in church and was also a Girl Scout. She was an incredibly intelligent child. Her IQ was also in the superior range, and her intelligence was evident by her excellent performance in school. By the time she reached the end of high school, she had outperformed most of her peers. She graduated from Academy High School in 1967, ranked number 12 out of 413 total students, and she was extremely knowledgeable about literature, history, and law. Marjorie jumped right into attending college at Mercyhurst College in 1964. She lived at home with her parents while she was pursuing her education. Three years later, in 1970, Marjorie obtained a bachelor's degree in sociology, biology, and social work, which... Once we get more into the story, you will think these are very interesting majors for her.
1: Yeah, for sure. By the time Marjorie graduated from Mercyhurst, she was really pretty full of herself. Early in her adolescence, when she was just 12 years old, Marjorie suffered from anorexia and dropped down to just 85 pounds after she began starving herself due to what she perceived was intense pressure from her parents to be perfect. All through her life, her body image was something that she was very conscious of, and she was obsessed with maintaining what she believed was the perfect figure. She wasn't a bad-looking woman, and she herself proclaimed that she was the prettiest girl in all of Erie. She also prided herself on the accomplishments of family members before her, like that her grandfather was a police sergeant, and that a local elementary school was called Deal Elementary, and it was named after her cousin. Some might say that Marjorie had a long history of being arrogant and entitled, and that even though she struggled with numerous mental illnesses, she held herself in high regard and thought the world of herself. However, much of this was likely due to her bipolar disorder that was not yet diagnosed at this time, which for her included extreme narcissism that led her to believe she deserved only the best in life. It wasn't until her early 20s that she decided to seek treatment for her mental illness. Marjorie claimed that the reason she sought this treatment was because she had struggled in romantic relationships and that she wanted to have a chance at settling down with the right person. After sessions with her counselor, one evaluation stated that there was a, quote, deep-seated hatred of men and passive-aggressive personality traits, end quote, that were present in Marjorie. During this time of her life, Marjorie found work as a part-time high school history teacher while she worked towards obtaining a master's degree in education from Gannon University. She finally obtained that degree in 1975. Her degree was heavily focused on guidance and counseling. She then immediately began taking courses towards a doctorate degree. All of this to say that while Marjorie did struggle with various mental health issues, she was genius-level smart, and her academic accomplishments were just nothing to scoff at. In the years that Marjorie was working to further her education, she moved out of her parents' home and rarely returned to visit. It was at this point in her early to mid-twenties that Marjorie's parents said she became her own person. But those who knew Marjorie professionally thought that she was really an outstanding citizen. She did a lot of volunteer work, and those who volunteered alongside her said that she was one of the best volunteers they could have ever asked for. It was also during this period, between the late 60s to early 70s, that Marjorie met and began a relationship with William, who goes by Bill, Rothstein. The man who would eventually turn Marjorie into police for an alleged murder.
0: Bill was also very smart and lived a mostly quiet life in Erie, where he worked as a handyman and a substitute teacher at local high schools. He was a very burly man, standing at six foot two and really embodying all of these typical qualities of the lumberjack type. Like Marjorie, Bill had a high level of intelligence, but he was not very well adjusted socially. Bill and Marjorie were engaged for about nine months, but after Bill got a taste for Marjorie's emotional instability, he decided to break off their relationship. But he felt somewhat guilty for giving up on her, and he kept in contact with her through the years to check in and see how she was doing. Shortly after the relationship with Bill ended, Marjorie entered into another relationship with a man named Rob Thomas in 1971. At the time, Rob was around 30 years old and had served in the Vietnam War, but he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and schizophrenia with paranoid behavior. At the time he met and began dating Marjorie, he was still married, but he was separated from his wife, who alleged that he was physically abusive towards her during their marriage. This relationship did not last very long, and by October of the same year, he and Marjorie had broken up. Following this breakup, Marjorie sought out mental health treatment at UPMC Hammett, where she told her psychiatrist that she struggled with relationships. It was at this point that she was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but she was not put on any medications to treat it at that time. Even though Marjorie continued to struggle in her personal life, she excelled in her college career and eventually graduated from grad school in 1975. And by that time, she also had 21 credits towards her doctorate degree. She had extensive qualifications to work as a teacher, but for reasons unknown, she was unable to find work as a teacher after graduating. If you were to ask Marjorie, she would tell you that it was her mother's fault that she couldn't find a job and that she should have helped her, but she didn't. Because she had a tough time finding permanent work in the teaching profession, Marjorie began working as a substitute teacher teaching American history, and she also gave private music lessons for an additional income. In
1: 1980, Marjorie embarked on a new journey and founded a nonprofit organization called the Erie Women's Center. One of the services that the center offered was to arrange abortions for women living in the Buffalo, New York area. This was one of the first times that Marjorie found herself in legal trouble for running a scam in which she would tell women that they were pregnant when they actually weren't, and then she would offer to set up an abortion for them for a fee. She was caught on April 18, 1980, when an undercover officer showed up at the clinic and provided a urine sample from a male officer. She was told that the urine tested positive for pregnancy, and Marjorie offered to set up an abortion. But she'd been caught red-handed running this scam, and less than a week later, she was charged with conspiracy. Because she had no prior criminal background, Marjorie was given the option to complete the Accelerated Rehabilitative Disposition Program and free herself of a criminal record. On November 11th of that year, she was given two years of probation and 60 hours of community service. She completed the program two years later on November 30th, 1982. After this time in her life, Marjorie never again held a full-time employment position, but she did continue to seek mental health treatments and was eventually prescribed medication. Unfortunately, Marjorie took it upon herself to either stop or lower her doses without the consent of her doctor. One of the key symptoms of Marjorie's manic phases were an increased sex drive, and due to this, she would often enter into relationships that she would later regret. The more her mental health declined, the more she said it was affecting her ability to live a normal life and to hold regular employment. On numerous occasions, Marjorie asked different doctors to fill out the necessary paperwork so that she could collect disability, but she was always considered a flaky patient, and each time she submitted an application, it was denied.
0: Things were really starting to spiral for Marjorie at this time. In 1983, she moved into a very tiny house. It was only 672 square feet on Sunset Boulevard. Early the following year, she was finally approved to receive disability pay, which was paid out retroactively all the way back to May of 1976. So she actually got eight years worth of disability pay all at once. Oh, wow. A short time later, a familiar man came back into Marjorie's life. We mentioned him earlier in the episode, but his name was Rob Thomas. He was a man that Marjorie had a very short relationship with back in 1971. By the time they rekindled their relationship in 1984, Rob was officially divorced from his previous wife, and he moved right into Marjorie's new home on Sunset. Just as Rob had done in his previous relationships, he began physically abusing Marjorie as well. And This was often done in public where there were witnesses to this abuse. The treatment she received from Rob eventually led Marjorie to purchase a 25 caliber gun and some ammunition. She purchased this gun about five months after she had gotten back together with him. She told some friends of hers that she was buying the gun as a present for Rob's birthday, but on the application for the firearm, she said that she needed it for personal protection. Then, just five days later, Marjorie used the gun she purchased on her abuser. In the early morning hours of July 30th, 1984, Rob instigated an argument with Marjorie. When she told him to leave her alone, he refused, so she grabbed the gun off the coffee table and threatened him with it. Rob told Marjorie that he was going to take the gun from her, and in a moment of panic and terror, she shot him numerous times, hitting him with three bullets while another three bullets went into the wall behind him. This is all Marjorie's story of what happened. Right. After being shot, Rob collapsed onto the couch and Marjorie just left him there and took off after grabbing the gun, $12,000 in cash, and other items from inside the house. She then went to her parents' home and asked for their help, but after they refused to help her, she left and went to a bank to take out more money and then continue looking for a friend to help her. She contacted her friend Donna and asked her to help get rid of Rob's body. In return, Marjorie said she would pay her $25,000. Donna called her sister over to help and to talk with Marjorie. But after hearing what she'd done and what she wanted them to do, they told her to leave immediately. And once Marjorie was gone, these two women contacted their mom and told her what happened. And their mom called the police to report the shooting. This is like a lot of six degrees of separation. Like, right? that, like so many people that have, you know, she told these two women and they're like, I don't know who to call so we'll call our mom like I just that's just crazy
1: I think two more calls and Kevin Bacon would have been the one that made yeah
0: (laughs) yeah so later that evening police located Marjorie and took her to the police station for questioning
1: investigators were able to obtain a search warrant to enter Marjorie's home where they found Rob's body on the couch in the living room they could see from the powder marks around the bullet holes that Marjorie had shot Rob at close range he was lying on his right side with his feet on the floor his head on the armrest, and the bottom half of his body was covered up with a throw blanket. It was determined that he died at 7.13 a.m. But the suspicious shooting at the home wasn't the only thing that the police immediately noticed upon entering the small house. They were overwhelmed by the living conditions inside the home and the stench of rotting food. Rats could be seen running everywhere among what appeared to be the home of a hoarder. Investigators learned that Marjorie was hoarding food in a way that you couldn't even begin to explain. Some of the food items found in the home were 389 pounds of butter, 727 pounds of unrefrigerated cheese, 37 dozen eggs, which you could probably find that at your house, 180 (laughs) boxes of mac and cheese, dozens of loaves of moldy bread, 55 packages of frozen meat and vegetables, and much, much more. So I lived in a house whenever my husband and I were married, had our daughter. And then when my son was first born and we lived there for a year and it was 650 square feet and you could not walk in that house without running into things. I can't even begin to comprehend where all this food was stored in a house that
0: size at no, all. And the list of things they found was so long. I mean, we could sit here for half the episode, just listing all the items they found of different food items. And, and a lot of it was like box food and canned goods and stuff. But then there was a lot of food that like is perishable that was just being hoarded. And like, yeah. I guess I don't understand that because I understand if you're hoarding things like that, I understand that you would keep things like canned food and you would stockpile things that will keep for a long time because maybe you want them later. But it's just odd to me to have all this cheese unrefrigerated and what a waste of cheese. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that part is
1: particularly upsetting to me. But I've watched a lot of hoarders and it makes sense when they talk about, um, her specific mental illness and kind of how she reacted to things. Not everyone that has her mental illness would react this way, but that it made sense to her. And this is like what she did. That's just kind of what she did. So it didn't have to, it doesn't make sense to us, but to her, it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to have, you know, 389 pounds of butter. Why don't you, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Definitely. So in total police collected and dumped over four tons of food from inside the home. Again, I know this size house. I cannot even figure this out. So Marjorie had government surplus food stored in every nook and cranny, including the attic, and it was learned that she visited food pantries as many as three to four times per week. Investigators calculated that the food that they removed from the house was worth around $9,890. Another $157,000 in items were taken from the home. Experts who reviewed the case said that they believed that Marjorie's hoarding was a sign that she was unable to think clearly and that she was acting on impulse. Although Marjorie stated that she had murdered Rob in self defense, the evidence didn't really point to that being the case at all. She was arrested and charged with first degree murder after refusing a plea deal for third degree murder.
0: Yeah, so I was, when I was describing the way that Marjorie said this incident happened and how it just doesn't really add up, I, I think part of the reasons like the evidence for that was because he was on the couch when he was shot and he had a blanket over his legs so that doesn't really go along with her story that they were actively engaged right. in some kind of argument at the time that she shot him um so i just thought that was interesting because it definitely seems a little questionable the story that she gave
1: yeah for sure she wouldn't have to sit in jail for too long though her dad put up the bail money that she needed to be released and then she moved back into her parents house where she stayed in her childhood bedroom. But Marjorie just couldn't stay out of trouble and stay under the radar. In January of 1985, she was sent back to jail after it was found out that she'd attempted to hire a hitman to kill some of the trial witnesses that were going to testify in her murder trial. Yikes. So she was sent back to jail, but she wasn't charged with solicitation.
0: Jury selection in this case began on February 27, 1985. Marjorie was originally being represented by a court appointed attorney, but her parents stepped in and hired a defense team that ended up costing them $60,000. The process of preparing for trial was quite lengthy. Her defense insisted that Marjorie needed to be medicated to get her mood under control and that her mental illness really precluded her from assisting in the trial. Over the next three and a half years, Marjorie underwent a psychological evaluation seven different times and was found incompetent each time. But on January 29th, 1988, she was finally found competent to stand trial. Her trial began in May of 1988 and lasted 12 days before coming to an end on June 1st. In a surprising turn of events, Marjorie was found not guilty of homicide or possessing an instrument of crime, but she was found guilty of carrying a firearm without a license. So she was given just 15 months of probation, and she promised the judge that she'd learned her lesson and that she would stay out of trouble from then on. But this was far from being the last time Marjorie would be involved in a scandal. Following her release from custody, Marjorie's father bought her a new house to live in in March of 1988, where she lived alone for one year. Then, in the summer of the following year, she met a man named Richard Armstrong and began a new relationship with him. Like many of her suitors before, Richard suffered with his own mental illness and tendency towards violence. He had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and he was also an obsessive germaphobe, so much so that he actually drank bleach with his meals. Just months into this relationship, Richard began showing his violent side. In 1990, he threw bricks at Marjorie and at her car, which led to her pressing charges against him. While he was awaiting trial in that incident, he continued to physically assault Marjorie, leading to more charges being brought against him. In May of 1990, Richard was sentenced to six months to a year in prison for the brick incident, and in January of 91, he was given 30 days in jail and two years of probation for hitting and threatening Marjorie. But that did not stop their relationship from continuing. Just two weeks after his last sentencing, Marjorie and Richard got married. Wow. This is when Marjorie hyphenated her name to Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Despite the obvious problems in this relationship, Marjorie claimed that she and Richard were soulmates, and he moved into the home that her father bought her. About a year and a half later, the violent relationship came to an interesting and suspicious end. On August 22, 1992, Richard began to complain
1: that he had a terrible headache and he'd been demonstrating flu-like symptoms for two weeks. At some point around the same time, he'd also gone off his medications, including one that he was taking to control his high blood pressure. After struggling with feeling weak, he suddenly collapsed in their home and fell into a table, cutting his head and his shoulder. Marjorie dialed 911 and an ambulance came and picked Richard up. At the emergency room, he was diagnosed with a virus, but later that evening, Richard fell unconscious. A CT scan showed a cerebellar hemorrhage. Richard's condition quickly deteriorated. He went into a coma and was declared brain dead. Two days later, Richard's heart stopped. His cause of death was ruled a stroke with swelling on the brain. After his death, Marjorie then sued the hospitals and the doctors who treated Richard, allegedly because they didn't catch the brain hemorrhage in time to save his life the lawsuit turned out pretty well for her and they settled for $250,000. So now the story comes back around to how Marjorie was connected to Jim Roden, the man who was found frozen in a large freezer at the home of Bill Rothstein. After Richard Armstrong died, Marjorie was back on the prowl for a new relationship. That's when she met Jim Roden, a 35-year-old alcoholic in a bar. This relationship moved just as quickly as all the others. Within a very short period of time, Jim moved into Marjorie's home, and by July of 1994, he was physically abusing her. In one instance, he shoved her, which caused her to cut her leg deep enough to require six stitches. Marjorie then filed a restraining order, which was granted, but a month later, he violated the order and ended up getting three months of jail time, followed by a year of probation. The next summer, he violated the protection order again and received six months in jail. Once again, Marjorie ignored all the red flags within this relationship, and as soon as he was released from jail, she got back together with Jim. The couple spent a lot of time together going fishing, and it was through this hobby that they met a man named Kenneth Barnes, who was a TV repairman, drug dealer, and fellow hoarder. His name will come up again later in the story. The strained relationship between Marjorie and Jim continued for the next several years. In the summer of 2000, another event would signal another turning point for Marjorie in her mental health.
0: On July 16th, Marjorie's mother passed away from a blocked artery and a blood clot. As we mentioned before, her parents had always been pretty well off, so Marjorie received $54,200 of inheritance, but that didn't make her happy, especially not when she learned that her mom had left $84,200 to her father. There were also municipal bonds worth $1.8 million that Marjorie believed should go entirely to her. This was a thought that she really had her entire life. As we said in the beginning, Marjorie thought she would get everything when her parents died, even when she was as young as eight years old, and she always believed that she was entitled to it all. Several months after her mom's death, Marjorie became paranoid and concerned about the way her father was handling the money. She told her psychiatrist that she felt he was squandering her inheritance. By this point, she was obsessing over this money and getting her hands on it. In 2003, Marjorie and Jim figured out that they could get government subsidy checks if they turned the attic in their home into an apartment. Since Marjorie owned the home, she would get a check and they would claim that Jim was her new tenant, so he would get a check as well. The couple enlisted the help of their new friend, Kenneth Barnes, to help them with this remodel. During this time where Kenneth was spending all this time at Marjorie's house working, they became closer, and Marjorie frequently complained to Kenneth about how her dad was spending her inheritance. During these conversations, Marjorie would become highly irritated. At this point, Marjorie really took a turn for the worst and began coming up with ideas for how to get her hands on more money. She asked Kenneth if he would help her rob a bank, and he refused. So she asked him if he would help her construct a bomb, which he also refused. But then Marjorie asked Kenneth if he would kill her father for $250,000 in return. Marjorie's idea was that if her dad were to die, then she would be entitled to all of what she considered to be her money. Thanks. Yeah, so Kenneth agreed to help in the plot. Once Marjorie had secured a hitman to kill
1: her father, she needed to come up with the $250,000 to pay him for it. When her mother first passed away, Marjorie's father had gone to their bank, which was a PNC bank, and was granted access to his late wife's safety deposit box. At the time, this infuriated Marjorie, and she decided that she could kill two birds with one stone. Get back at the bank for giving her dad money he was able to access, I guess, by robbing them. So her idea is, you shouldn't have given my dad that money, so I'm going to rob you. And use this stolen money to pay Kenneth for the hit on her father. To pull off a plan of this magnitude, Marjorie was aware that she would need a lot more help than just one man. So she came up with an intricate plan involving several people she was already acquainted with. The plan? Use a bomb and a hostage to rob the bank obtain the money, and have her father killed. The accomplices that Marjorie chose were as follows. The first was her ex-boyfriend, Bill Rossine, who was highly intelligent and knew how to create the type of bomb Marjorie was interested in. The next was a friend of Bill's who was also a fugitive named Floyd Stockton, and he would serve as the enforcer of the whole operation. Next was Marjorie's current boyfriend, Jim Roden, and he would be tasked with being the getaway driver. Next was Kenneth Barnes, and he was of course the hitman, but he was also going to help Marjorie with a lookout. All that was left to figure out was who would be the bomb hostage that would go into the bank and demand the money. And that's where Brian Wells comes into the picture. This case is a bit confusing because of all the people involved and their connection to each other. And what we didn't mention in the beginning of the episode is that Brian Wells wasn't just a random citizen that was kidnapped against his will and forced into participating in this evil plan. As it turned out, Brian had a connection to Kenneth Barnes. Kenneth was his drug dealer. Brian had recently found himself in debt with Kenneth and he needed cash to settle it. So allegedly, he agreed to be a part of the heist in return for payment, which he could use to pay off Kenneth. And we're going to get right back into what happened next after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. It's crazy hot outside, and there still is a lot of summer left. I know I should be better about drinking more water, but the fact is, by the time I actually feel thirsty and go to grab some water, I'm already dehydrated. When I'm dehydrated, I can't focus and I start feeling really tired. Luckily, now I have Hydrant to help me out. Hydrant is a refreshing electrolyte powder that
0: you can mix directly in your water to more efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. And best of all, it helps your body to hydrate fast and to stay hydrated. Plus, since it's made with real fruit juice powder, it's delicious and refreshing and comes in a great variety of flavors, including their summer-friendly Fruit Punch and Iced Tea Lemonade.
1: Start your day the hydrant way with my favorite flavor, grapefruit. I am admittedly terrible at drinking water, but adding hydrant to my water
0: first thing in the morning is easy and it starts my day off with a little hydrated pep in my step. We've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash murder or enter our promo code murder at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash murder and enter promo code murder for 25% off your first order drinkhydrantcom slash murder and enter promo code murder to save 25%. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Sometimes, especially as moms, it feels like you're being pulled in 50 different directions. And naturally, when that happens, it's really hard to focus. And since I know life is not going to be getting any less crazy, I've been looking for something to help with focus. And that's why I love Focal. Focal Plant-Powered Wellness has been a huge help for me, as its stacks use nature's best ingredients to help me focus during the day and sleep at night.
1: It's so easy to get burnout or feel overwhelmed. Focal offers both day and night options, and I'm really loving Focal Day. It combines premium CBD plus stress-fighting adaptogens that really help reduce brain fog, which is how I go through life. And it helps increase my productivity and turns my creativity on high. When I'm stressed, I find myself very short-tempered. Focal has really helped me deal with everyday stressors so I don't feel so overwhelmed and I'm ready to take on the day, whatever the heck it has in store for me.
0: Focal Day has ingredients from Mother Nature, such as Lion's Mane, L-theanine, vitamin B6, Bacopa Monieri, and premium CBD. Focal takes something that is already amazing, their premium CBD, and stacks on five stress-fighting adaptogens and calming botanicals for the ultimate daytime supplement. The adaptogens help your body resist symptoms of stress, including anxiety and fatigue, increases mental alertness, concentration, and productivity, and reduces brain fog and brings your body and mind back to balance. Plus, there are long-term benefits for a healthy mind. Best of all, Focal offers a 60-day money-back guarantee. Love it or pay $0. Use
1: code MOMS for 15% off your order. Go to focal.com, that's F-O-C-L.com, and use code MOMS for 15% off your first order. Now, back to the episode.
0: Before we took the break, we were talking about Brian Wells' involvement in this crazy plot that Marjorie Armstrong had kind of concocted, and she was bringing all these different accomplices into it. So there is some controversy in this case surrounding whether or not Brian was a willing participant in this crime, but it is believed that he did willingly agree to help in the form of being the bomb hostage. A co-worker of Brian's at the pizzeria named Robert Panetti also helped convince Brian to go along with this plan. The details of the robbery plan were, of course, anything but ordinary. Marjorie and Rothstein told the others that they were going to be making a fake collar bomb for Brian to wear into the bank. It was to be made of two different parts, a triple-banded metal collar with four keyholes, a three-digit combination lock, and an iron box with two six-inch pipe bombs loaded with double-base smokeless shotgun powder. It would have two sunbeam kitchen timers and one electronic timer with decoy wires running all throughout the device. A four-page letter was then crafted for Bill to hand to the bank teller, and a nine-page scavenger hunt letter that was addressed to bomb hostage was given to Brian as sort of an alibi in case he got caught by the police, and this would ensure that he appeared to be a victim of the plot and not a willing participant, also giving the others a chance to kind of distance themselves from the whole scene. Unfortunately for Marjorie, not everyone who was in on the plot was totally comfortable and on board with it. Her boyfriend, Jim Roden, started getting anxious and told Marjorie that he was going to turn her into the police. But Marjorie was not about to let anyone stand in the way of this money that she felt she was rightfully entitled to. She bought a 12-gauge shotgun that she found through a classified ad in the newspaper with the intention of taking care of her problem, and in her mind, her problem was Jim Roden. On August 10, 2003, at around 2 o'clock in the morning, Marjorie went into the apartment in her attic where Jim was asleep and shot him twice in the back. She then fled the home, leaving his body there for two days while she lived in her car, deciding what to do next. On August 12th, she called her ex-boyfriend and the bomb maker, Bill Rothstein, and told him what she'd done. And she offered him $78,000 in cash to help her get rid of Jim's body, which Bill agreed to do. The two of them returned to the house, wrapped Jim's body in a plastic tarp, and then put him in the car and drove him to Bill's home. They then placed the body in the freezer and headed back to Marjorie's to clean up the crime scene. They emptied the entire attic and dropped everything off at the landfill. Bill then insisted in getting rid of the murder weapon, so he cut the shotgun into pieces and melted them down, and then he went for a drive, tossing pieces of the shotgun out of his window as he drove along. Marjorie's idea for completely disposing of Jim's body was to use an ice crusher to disperse the remains, and she actually purchased one for this reason, which is just, it just reminds me of that one story that we did a long time. Was it Crafts? I think that Mm -hmm. was the wood chipper one. That is just so, I don't even know how you think of doing that, of using that as an option. But that plan would have to wait until after the bank heist and after the hit on Marjorie's father was complete.
1: Day before the bank robbery, the group of accomplices met up for a practice run. Brian Wells went to the address of the transmission tower, where he met with them to have this allegedly fake collar bomb fitted around his neck, and they all went over the plan for the final time. The next day, August 28th, it was time to put this plan into action. Bill Rossine was the one that placed the call to Mama Mia's at 1.30 that afternoon to order the pizzas to be delivered to the tower just several hundred yards away from his house. The owner of Mama Mia's who answered the phone didn't know it then, but Brian Wells was already expecting this call. He delivered two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas to the tower where he met up with his accomplices. However, things started to go awry when Brian freaked out, possibly when he realized that this may be a real bomb and that the caller bomb wasn't fake after all, and maybe he was actually putting his life at risk going along with this plan. That's when the enforcer, Floyd Stockton, approached Brian to put the bomb collar on him and Brian panicked and tried to run away. Bill Rossine fired a warning shot with a gun while two of the other men forced Brian to the ground. Marjorie held the collar bomb while Rossine attached it to Brian's neck. They then gave Brian a homemade shotgun that they had fashioned to look like a cane. He was to use the gun and the bomb to intimidate the bank tellers into complying with their demands. From this point, the accomplices all parted ways. Brian Wells got back into his own car and headed to the bank while Marjorie and Kenneth Barnes got in her car and parked across the street from the bank with a pair of binoculars to keep an eye on the situation as it unfolded. It was 2.27 when Brian walked into the bank and gave the teller the note. Whether or not Brian fully realized that he was wearing a live bomb is still up for debate in some true crime circles. He appeared very calm and almost nonchalant in bank surveillance footage and even took a lollipop off the counter and started eating it in the middle of the heist. But whether or not Brian knew that he was walking around with a ticking time bomb didn't really matter in the end. As we mentioned in the beginning, investigators later determined that there was absolutely no way that Brian would have had enough time to complete all the tasks to free himself from the bomb before it exploded. And for that reason, they believed that it was Marjorie's intention for him to die all along.
0: Several weeks after the failed bank heist that took the life of Brian Wells, Bill Rothstein became increasingly paranoid that he was going to be next on Marjorie's hit list. And after knowing her for years and witnessing firsthand what she was capable of, I would say this is probably a pretty logical concern for him to have. I would be terrified of this woman. So on September 20th, he threw himself under the bus by calling police to report that Jim Roden's frozen body was in his garage and that Marjorie was responsible for his murder. They were both taken to jail, and Marjorie awaited trial for murder for the second time in her life. She was charged with homicide, aggravated assault, abuse of a corpse, possession of an instrument of crime, tampering with evidence, and criminal conspiracy. While she was in prison, she was dubbed, quote, the freezer queen. Just as she had been subject to competency testing before in her first murder trial, she was sent for the same type of testing again this time. And once again, it took over a year before she was found fit to stand trial in the case of Jim Roden's murder. While she was behind bars, Bill Rothstein passed away from lymphoma at the age of 60. So with their key witness being gone, prosecutors offered Marjorie a plea deal in which she could plead guilty but mentally ill to charges of third-degree murder and abuse of a corpse. Marjorie took the deal and she was sentenced to seven to 20 years in prison and she would be eligible for parole after seven years. In prison, Marjorie told numerous people that she was also involved in the pizza bomber scandal. At least four informants told police that Marjorie had discussed this with them in detail, including that she had murdered Jim Roden because he was going to tell police about the bank robbery. She also told them that she helped measure Brian Wells' neck for the collar bomb.
1: Wow. Wow. In April of 2005, officers met with Marjorie to discuss these claims. She told them that she wasn't involved in the plot, but that she did supply the timers used in the bomb, and she even admitted to being within a mile of the bank at the time of the robbery. In this conversation, she told police that Bill Rothstein was a true mastermind, which was very convenient since he's no longer alive at this point, and she said that Brian Wells was also involved willingly in the plot. But then she started implicating herself by mistake. She told the officers that the bomb was made with shotgun powder, which was a fact that hadn't been released to the public and would have been unknown to anyone who wasn't involved. A few months later, a different police informant alerted police that Kenneth Barnes was also involved in the bank heist. By this time, Kenneth was actually in jail on drug-related charges, and he, too, had spoken freely about his involvement in the pizza bomber plot.
0: I guess these people don't realize that other folks in jail want to get out. So if you like start telling them details of a crime that you committed that you haven't been in trouble for yet, like they're probably going to turn you in.
1: If I was in jail, the only thing I would do is go sit and take notes of everyone talking (laughs) to try and do that because they just seem to speak so freely about it. Like that's not going, that's going to get you caught, but they just didn't seem to really care. And it's crazy. They were both kind of, you know, in there for different reasons and- This is how this all comes about, really. So Kenneth was threatened with more jail time if he didn't give full testimony in exchange for a reduced sentence. He, of course, agreed to work with them. Kenneth told police the true story, that Marjorie was the mastermind and that the end goal was for her to have her father killed. He alleged that he was unaware of most of the Bankai's plan, but he was able to corroborate what other informants had already told police. In February of 2006, investigators met with Marjorie again. At that point, they let her know that they had enough evidence to indict her. She was not happy about that and even had a little temper tantrum over it, but then she agreed to drive with them around Erie and show police where she was during the robbery. During this part of the investigation, Marjorie admitted to being at several places that were linked to the crime. When it was all said and done, Marjorie tried to blackmail the police by saying she wouldn't give them any more information until they gave her a letter of immunity, but the police already had enough evidence to charge her anyway, so it didn't matter what demand she made. She was officially charged in July of 2007.
0: In September of the following year, Kenneth Barnes pleaded guilty to conspiracy and weapons charges, and he was sentenced to 45 years in prison. He agreed to testify against Marjorie in exchange for a reduced sentence. The first judge that was presiding over Marjorie's case found that she was unfit to stand trial because she was mentally unfit to assist in the process. She was sent to a federal prison mental hospital in Texas. In September of 2009, she was found competent to stand trial in the pizza bomber case. Nearly a year later, she was diagnosed with glandular cancer and her trial was put on hold until she received a prognosis. She was eventually given three to seven years to live, and her trial was rescheduled for October 12, 2010. She asked the judge for a change in venue due to the intense media attention surrounding her case, but the judge said all the attention she was getting was her own fault because she was the one who had been contacting (laughs) reporters herself for years on end, and he denied the change of venue. After weeks at trial, Marjorie was finally found guilty on all charges against her on November 1, 2010. She was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. However, she wouldn't get the chance to serve out much of her sentence because Marjorie died in prison on April 4, 2017 at the age of 68. Since Kenneth Barnes testified against Marjorie, he was awarded half the sentence that he originally got. Now he would only have to serve 22 and a half years. It wouldn't matter for him though because he also died in June of 2019 at the age of 65 following a battle with heart disease and diabetes. So a couple of summers ago,
1: we actually kind of talked about doing this story, but it was when the documentary Evil Genius came out and everybody was watching it on Netflix. So we you know, put it on the back burner and are talking about it now. And I learned a lot in this from the research that you were doing, Mandy, that I didn't hear in the documentary, which was kind of interesting. I don't remember the focus of this being her And it could just be my memory, her wanting to kill her father for inheritance money. But basically, she wasn't really going to even get that much. At the end of it, how many people died? And she never saw a penny of it. No one saw a penny of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. And I know I was telling you. And I mean, it was a while ago. And I did watch Evil Genius. But for some reason... I didn't remember any of this either, and I intentionally did not watch it again while I was working on this Mm -hmm. episode because I didn't want to get confused in my brain, and I just wanted to do it off of research the way I normally would do it. I feel like I'm going to probably go back and watch Evil Genius again on nights when I'm just sitting around and need something to watch because there was a lot that I didn't remember from watching that, and maybe I just lost – Maybe I just didn't – I lost my attention span for it because I know it was several episodes of it. It was. So maybe that's what happened to me. I Maybe I just, like, didn't completely get to the end of it. But, yeah, I definitely don't remember that either. So I learned a lot that I did not know before. And yeah. hopefully hopefully everybody listening also learned at least one new thing that they didn't know before. Yeah. It's that an will make me feel better. Sure, because it has been a publicized case. So, you know. Yeah, but that
1: – I mean, it's nice to do those and talk about those the way we talk about them. and Yeah. Um, and it is, it, I mean, if I asked my mom right now, she wouldn't know what the story was. Not, you know, she just doesn't really watch the Netflix documentaries and stuff. And honestly, before that came out, I had never even heard of this story, which sounds crazy because it's such a banana story. You know, there's so many pieces to it. I mean, just the guy with a bomb that thinks it's not a bomb that robs a bank. There's just, you couldn't make this story up at all. You really couldn't.
0: You can't. And there's so many people involved and in how they're all connected to each right. other. It's just one of those stories where you're like, whoa, like this is very a rabbit hole story where you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that like that is what led to all of what ended up happening here. Yeah. Like it's just it is so much. Like you said, it's just too much. It's a lot.
1: Yeah. And Mandy and I have talked because um, you know, a lot of the people were alive. Uh, Brian Wells, of course, passed away at the beginning of this uh, story, but his family definitely said there really was, or a lot of his family, I should say, came out and said, hey, there really was no connection. He just got drug into this. So, I mean, this is what the police are saying and what investigators have come up with. So, you know, who knows the whole story? I don't think anyone will ever know the entire story because Marjorie, I don't think, always told the truth. I think Bill right. w- was going to throw her under the bus. You know, there was just... And, why would they even tell the truth at this point? Really? Why would they incriminate themselves more? They're all pushing blame other places. Marjorie said after, you know, Bill died. It was Bill's idea. You just don't know the real truth in this story.
0: Right. You really don't. It's it's definitely one of those stories that makes you really think about people and kind of just the inner workings of people's yeah. minds and kind of what leads them to do the things that they do. Right. Very, very interesting and fascinating case. And I am glad that we got to talk about it on the podcast, even though it has been talked about other places before. Me too. Yeah. So we are going to move on to last thing before we go. We're going to turn the page. I forgot that I'm supposed to say that. I think the last <laughs> two episodes in a row. So we're going to turn the page and go to last thing before we go, where we talk about nonsense to kind of get our brains back on track after we talked about Crazy Story. Right. So this week I asked in the Facebook group for the podcast if anybody had any new suggestions, and I got a couple of them. I thought they were pretty good. So the first one that we're going to talk about is what are the ways that we as Floridians spot who is a tourist and who is not a tourist? So basically, what is a dead giveaway that, that somebody in our state is not from our state?
1: Ooh, okay. Do you want to start with the first one? And these are not meant to be offensive whatsoever. People always, literally there's gifts of Bugs Bunny cutting off the state of Florida from the US. Right. So uh, <laughs> we take a lot of flack here. So nothing we say is meant to be personally hurting anyone's feelings. These are all meant to be lighthearted and silly and you can make the same things
0: for your own state. So that being right. said. And if man, you yeah. if you have ever come to Florida and you're guilty of any of these, yeah, we're not picking on you. It's just you're not alone. That's the, That's what we're trying to tell you here. You're not alone. These are things that commonly yeah. <laughs> happen with people who are not from here. So my first one is that I feel like a lot of people who come to visit and you can tell they're not from here because they are really sunburnt. When I say really sunburnt, I mean oh, like yeah. you've seen them where it's like, oh my gosh, did you put sunscreen on at all? And it's like, I feel like some of it is just not really having an understanding of how Florida sun is compared to some yeah. other places, but I feel like you can always tell if someone is from here by how badly they are sunburned, even if you are like a fair-skinned person, like you and me are. I'm you're not going to catch me walking around with a sunburn because I'm always lathering sunscreen yeah. on. So that's one of my top ways I can tell if somebody is from here.
1: My family and I look like the wiggles because we all have the rash guards and they're all blue and it looks like a family on the wiggles. <laughs> And when we're out at the beach or anything, it's, it's really pathetic. So I don't know where that puts us in the category. But um, one thing that I think is – it's a beach-related one too. People that carry everything to the beach, just yes, like coolers, <laughs> you know, like 50,000 toys, all that stuff. If you go to the beach a lot, you're just like – you have like your things. You don't even need to write a list. You're like sunscreen, water, <laughs> you know, snacks. And your tent. And that's it. That's like how you go to the beach. So whenever I see somebody with like a a horde of like just baskets of stuff, I'm like, oh, you're not from here, are you?
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's so true. I do feel like after you've been here a while and you kind of get the beach thing down, then you figure out like what things are actually necessary and yeah. what things are just a pain in the butt to drag from your car to the beach and back to your car. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, you really don't need a lot of things. Just bring some water and a cooler and a chair to sit in and your tent. You need shade. But yeah, For and sure. sunscreen. And that's yeah. pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's my turn. Um, So another thing that I always notice and see, and I'm sure you do too. So we have this terrible, terrible, awful interstate here called I-4. And I hate driving on it because it is so anxiety inducing. The people people that live in this state can't drive very well for starters. But um, if you're ever driving in the Disney area... You always know it's a tourist because they will immediately cut across four lanes of traffic, realizing that they're about to miss the exit for Disney. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true. I miss exits all the time. I'm like, all right, I'll just go to the next one. My husband gets so mad. I'm like, it's hmm, fine. I'll just get to the next one and turn around and start this over again. But you're right in that area, especially it's I hate driving. Yeah. in that area. Well, it's just everyone yeah. from all different parts of the country and the world so everyone drives a little bit different. But down there, like uh, international drive, like I'm not I can't even. There's no way I'll even drive down there because Everyone has a different rule for how they're going to drive, and yeah. it's not going to be the
0: way you do. That's very yeah. true. And I'm sure, I'm sure that cutting across lanes of traffic is a thing that happens everywhere. But yeah, I yeah. feel like we see it so much here, especially when you're in the areas driving past like the theme parks and stuff. Yeah. Like it is terrifying when you're driving 80 miles an hour and all of a sudden here comes a car crossing like three lanes of traffic with like one one movement. And I'm like, whoa! Like you can't do that! Like you're going to kill us all! So, yeah. and they have a baby yeah, on so- board
1: sticker on the back. You're like, no, really, pay <laughs> attention. <laughs> Please.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all so, right, Melissa, what else?
1: Oh, my uh, next one is uh people that complain about the heat more than once a day, like we're all gonna complain about it every day. Every day you know it's gonna be hot and miserable and gross. But after one time a day, you're like, Well, are you not from around here? Because this is totally normal. We don't have a fall. Wait until the winter to pull out a long sleeve shirt. I wear, you know, long sleeve or I wear like sweatshirts all the time, like in my house, because I feel like I don't get to do it in the fall. But if you hear somebody complaining (laughs) a lot about the heat, you're just like,
0: well, this is, this is Florida. (laughs) This is what we have going on. I don't know (laughs)
1: what you were expecting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so my last one is, um, have you ever seen an out-of-state person witnessing an alligator for the first time? I don't know that I have. That sounds um, fun though. Okay, so we have a whole entire place you can go if you want to have this experience. It is called Gatorland and that is exactly what it is. And so it is a thing because people don't really see alligators like out in the wild, I oh, guess yeah. other places besides mm. Florida. So I was going on this like little trail that I go on sometimes and there's water there. So of course to me I'm like I know I have to pay attention and watch right, out there's for alligators, alligators. but Right. But you, there was a family in front of me. Okay. And they didn't know, well, they're like fascinated. They saw one sitting on the bank and they were getting really close to it and taking a picture of it and kind of like just going crazy. And I was like, Whoa, like, you know, that's an alligator, right? Like you guys need to get away from that thing. (laughs) Like, like, what are you doing? But, um, that was my last and final one about how, you know, people are not from Florida. They're not even scared of alligators, which you think would be the opposite. They would be like terrified, but they just want to get close to them and Go visit them at Gatorland and take pictures of them yeah. out in the wild. It's yeah, just I've never had me. a desire
1: to go to Gatorland, and it's probably because I've seen a bajillion gators in my lifetime. It doesn't seem that yeah. exciting to me. <laughs> that makes sense. So my last one is um, people giving you directions without using Publix as a landmark. And I guess that's probably oh just Oh, my gosh, stop. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're like, which Publix is it by? And you're like, oh, the College Park one or whatever. Like, that's how you kind of figure out where you are in the
0: in town. So uh that's definitely if you know where a Publix is, you'll never truly be lost. No. (laughs) There you go.
1: (laughs) That should be a t shirt. If you know where Publix is, you'll never be lost.
0: All right. So, um, we are going to just do one more quick one. Mine is not terribly a long story, so hopefully this won't take too long. Uh, so we had another person suggest that we talk about any strange recurring dreams that we have ever had in our lives. And I only have one dream that has truly been a recurring dream in the sense that when I was growing up, I had this dream so often. I still have it not as often, but I will still have it at Every now and then. And it's super, super weird. Tell me. And ba- it's so weird. So basically, I'm at my grandparents' house. Where they lived when I was a kid. And I'm just kind of walking through, and then all of a sudden, and this is very Mandy of me um, that I've had this dream forever. So all of a sudden, I'm walking, and it's like it turns into some kind of wildlife park, Mm -hmm. and there's just different animals inside the house, and it's really crazy. And I'm trying to wade my way through these animals and get into the garage for some reason. And then the dream turns a little scary because I get into the garage, and nothing is in the garage except for this refrigerator in a corner and it's gold and it's like, Emitting this like gold shining light, this is so and the <laughs> it's so I know it's so weird. So the garage door in the dream is open only a little bit, which is also a thing that people in the south do. That way, their garages don't get too right. hot. um But it was open just enough where on the other side, I can see that there's a person standing there. I can see two feet, but I don't know who it is. And there's just this gold refrigerator like there, like. But I don't know. But at, at this point of the dream, I have this like sense of like doom. Like I don't know who this person is. I don't know. Know why this refrigerator is glowing. I don't know anything. All I know is that there's a bunch of animals inside the house, and now I'm out here where there's nothing and a strange person. And I just I don't know what this dream could possibly mean or why I have it like all you know all the time. But um yeah, so that's my weird what in dream In the world. Um, if
1: anyone is a dream <laughs> interpreter, I don't know if that's like a term, please email Mandy at momsandmurder at yeah. gmail.com and tell her because that's so many specific things that has to mean something. Um, yeah weird I don't I don't like anything about that. I don't nothing about that is appealing to me at all at all. I would throw myself right, into Melissa. the animals and hope they ate me um, so the only one I really have and I don't think I've had it too many times but enough to realize I've had it um my aunt, and uncle and cousins all lived in uh georgia and on this like dirt road and they all had like it's a bunch of family so everybody's got like trailers and stuff all on this road it's like two miles and um so we went there all the time when we were growing up and so i always remember my one aunt who is no longer alive um yelling for me that something was wrong and i was i would try to tell her like that somebody was chasing me because, of course, in my dream, I'm like actively being murdered, and um, but my voice—I don't have a voice, so I'm like screaming at people to help me, and nobody hears me, and so I'm just running like from house to house to house to tell people, and nobody's paying attention to me, which might actually make sense on why I have a podcast now. <laughs> Forcing people to listen. But it's something like it's a terrifying feeling that you don't have a voice. Like you literally can't speak and people can't understand you. So dream interpreters, unless it means I'm going to die soon,
0: please email us and tell us what that
1: means. I don't know what that means either.
0: I actually feel like yours is pretty common. That's happened to me in dreams before where I open my mouth to scream and I can't. And then the other thing that is equally terrifying and annoying is some I have some dreams where I'm trying to fight someone but like my arms just don't work like you'll try to like throw a punch at something but like you you can't like it's just not I like am, just I don't have you don't have muscles like at that, all man. it's so weird or I've also had the ones where um everything is pitch black but you know where you are and you know that you're like walking around but you can't see anything at all and I've I had that were, one a few times too I and that's you were really just sleepwalking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's impossible. called sleepwalking. <laughs> okay, all right. So, those, those were our very strange dreams. Yeah, if anybody does interpret dreams, please write to us and let us know what those Unless they
1: mean we're dying. I don't, I don't need know. negative ones, yeah.
0: I only well, need. I mean, I figure it's not, I figure it doesn't mean I'm dying since I've had this dream since I was a kid.
1: What about <laughs> if the last time you have it is when you die? I don't want to know that.
0: Well, <laughs> have you not watched
1: any movies? <laughs>
0: I guess I haven't watched any of those kinds recently. I haven't either. You
1: know, I saw the commercial and turned it off. (laughs)
0: All right, guys. So that was the episode for this week. Um, We hope you guys enjoyed it. And we will be back next week at the... Wait. Oh, gosh. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder
1: podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode.